it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Phil Mackey. He tried to be so polished. As a broadcaster, he says weird stuff, but it's almost funny at times. Judd Zolgad. Just from a baseball perspective, I really enjoy him. Mackey and Judd on 1500 ESPN. Reckless speculation. Reckless speculation. Reckless speculation. Uh, less than a month now until free agents can sign in the NFL. Tampering is about three weeks away, and under the table and behind the curtain tampering is probably already happening. The combine's coming up. So, Collar, you've written a ton of stuff on 1500ESPN.com about the future of the Vikings, looking internally and then looking at free agents. So who are some names that you think the Vikings should have their eye on in free agency with between 50 and $60 million in cap room? That includes having to sign a quarterback with that money as well. Uh, but where would you, aside from like the obvious Kirk Cousins or Teddy Bridgewater, who are some other names that the Vikings should have on their radar? In the, your mind? the the guy that's at the top of my list is Sheldon Richardson, who would be really intriguing yeah. because he could play the defensive tackle next to Linval Joseph. And you, if you think about what that would look like to have Everson Griffin uh, Sheldon Richardson, Linval Joseph, and Daniil Hunter as your defensive line. I think what the Philadelphia Eagles showed us by winning the Super Bowl, in part, was you could just never have enough great dudes rushing the passer or stuff in the middle or whatever, enough good players on the offensive or defensive line, and that rotating them in is a big help, and as much talent as you can get there is great. Richardson's going to be very expensive, it's, it wouldn't be the easiest thing in the world to just bring him in, uh, but that might be a worthwhile investment if they want to continue building that defensive line and stack it up as much as they possibly can. The other name that I think is a real possibility for the Vikings is Trey Burton, who was the number two tight end for the Eagles, and he ran a 4-6 coming out of college. He's that athletic tight end that the Vikings have tried to draft several times, but it hasn't worked out. Michael Pruitt, Bucky Hodges, these, if we were going to do random Vikings, that'd go on for the rest of time, right? We're talking <laughs> about random twins. Um, but the, the like guys like that rarely work out. Trey Burton is one of the guys who has, after a couple of years of development, has become a pretty good player. But Zach Ertz is a top three tight end of the NFL, so he's not going anywhere, which makes me think that Trey Burton will leave. 
And if you added him to a three-man rotation of having David Morgan, who was very good and valuable for the Vikings last year, Kyle Rudolph, who they may eventually move on from, maybe after next year, and then Burton, who is in his prime and is that athletic tight end that can be a vertical threat, uh, that is, I think, a guy to really watch. It would be a very good addition for them. And then what, what are they going to do with the guard tackle position? There's Nate Solder, who is a left tackle, starting left tackle, He's going to command a lot of money. They could do that and move Mike Remmers to guard and move Riley Reef over to right tackle. They could go after a guard like uh, Justin Pugh, who is from the Giants. He's got a little bit of versatility to his game. Andrew Norwell, I don't think is a great fit, but he's the best guard that's out there from the Panthers. I mean, offensive, defensive line, there are a lot of options that they could go out and get. And my totally off-the-radar idea is, is to get Don Terry Poe and have two nose tackles and have it be hilarious. Just Don Terry <laughs> Poe is 340 pounds. Just have them both like strapped together in the middle. Yeah. Just moving everything backwards. And, yeah. and give up 0.0 yards per carry. <laughs> Which is kind of what, I mean, like Kevin Williams wasn't quite as big as Pat Williams. That's kind of what the Williams wall was. And you watch Pat Williams in Buffalo too. Um, so let me go back to Trey Burton here because the idea of, so Kyle Rudolph, I think, is an endearing figure for Vikings fans because he's likable, he's accessible, and he's been pretty successful if you just look at when he's been healthy, he's scored some touchdowns and you know, he had nine touchdowns his second year in the league and he was a he was a pro bowler and and you and you had heard going into the draft process, oh, this is a a first round guy who because of the hamstring injury maybe fell out and so went for the first two or three years, we legitimately thought Oh, this guy might have a chance if he can stay on the field to be one of those top five tight ends in the NFL. The blocking has been lacking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the explosiveness, it's pretty obvious if you're watching a game, he gets tripped up by the yard lines sometimes. He's not gonna he's not gonna get a lot after the catch. If Trey Burton were to receive the same amount of snaps and targets, I mean Rudolph received two years ago 130 targets. That was reduced by 50 targets, even though he played 16 games in both years. So let's say you gave Trey Burton 100 targets or 90 targets. What kind of production would we see? Would it would it be better production than Kyle Rudolph has given the Vikings, or would it just be another depth option for you? I, I thought that the adjustment that Pat Shermer made to the way he used Kyle Rudolph this year was an effective one. I thought he was a more efficient player than he was before. He was kind of like a check down for... Uh, Sam Bradford, rather than scheming to get him the ball in the red zone, scheming to get him the ball on third and short, where it it seemed that teams always used to lose track of him on a play action on third and short, or even running screen passes with him from time to time. Pat Shermer deserves a lot of credit for using him really well last year. Uh, Trey Burton is just a more dangerous player that he could probably do all the same things as Kyle Rudolph because you mentioned there's no blocking ability there whatsoever, really. And he worked on it, and he may have improved a a little bit, but graded out just about the same by pro football focus at the end of the day. So the blocking is not very good. But that's where David Morgan was super valuable because he's one of the best blocking tight ends in the NFL. I like the combination of Morgan and Burton more than I like the combination of Rudolph and Morgan. Morgan, I think, is a guy you want for a long time because he's such an effective blocker but can also catch the ball if you throw it to mm-hmm. him. He's just a tank and can't run after catch or go down the field, really. Uh, but if if you throw it his way, he'll catch it. Burton is a guy who could stretch the field. I mean, he's fast enough where he's a mismatch 
for a lot of linebackers because of his speed. And if you give him more opportunity, he might be a really dangerous weapon for you. I like the idea for this next year of stacking up these skill positions as much as you possibly can. The Vikings at a lot of different spots last year sort of uh, lived on the edge outside of running back where they knew they were deep. They lived on the edge at safety, kind of got away with it, right? I mean, they they lived on the edge at linebacker. If you had lost Kendricks or Barr, what would you have? Mm -hmm. Emmanuel Lemur behind that? Uh, Ben Gideon can't play every down. So you would have ended up with playing a guy who's a a career, basically a backup, um, who has done nothing since coming to Minnesota. So I mean, interior defensive line. And now that Shamar Stefan is out, even even more so. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, there are positions where they could stack up and tight end. You saw the Eagles run three tight ends out there and use all three of them effectively. I think the Vikings should be doing the same thing. Yeah. And if you look at the history of Rob Brzezinski and Rick Spielman, once you start to creep into that age 29, age 30, you're on your maybe you're on your third contract in the NFL. That is prime see you later territory for those yeah. guys. Yeah. Uh, they're they're going to be more than willing to go to Kyle Rudolph. And this might even happen this offseason because he's only guaranteed like a million and a half to the cap, even yep. though his base salary would be seven and a half. And I think it's a combination of like $15 million the next two years. They're going to do one of two things with Kyle Rudolph. And that watch starts right now. Restructure so that you're not taking up, you know, top five or six cap money on the roster or just flat out, hey, it's been a good run. We need more out of that position. We need more blocking. We need more, just a, just a more dynamic playmaker. I can guarantee you one of those two things is going to happen before the end of next offseason and maybe even starting in the next couple months. I think he's a difficult guy to move on from right now because he's coming off a pretty decent year and his level of popularity does matter. I mean, the same thing goes for someone like Brian Robinson, who they could have moved on from after last year. If you were just going pure football and football only and considering nothing else and salary cap, but they restructured with Robinson. They did the same thing with Chad Greenway. They moved him down to a different role. They restructured and it might have to be the same with Rudolph, where he was playing 90% of snaps. I don't think he should be playing 90% of snaps. I think he should be playing maybe 50, and then you're working in Burton in situations and working in David Morgan in situations. And that's not worth $7.5 million right. to the cap if Correct. he's only playing half the snaps. Yeah. Correct. And Or if he's only productive on half the snaps. If you run the ball and he's not productive. And, and that's the biggest issue. He's just never going to be even decent at blocking. And... and if you're going to be a team that focuses a lot on the run, now Trey Burton isn't a blocker either, but David Morgan is. And that was where I think they got away with a lot of it last year with Rudolph's shortcomings was they would bring in the two tight ends and run out of the power formation and stuff like that with Latavius Murray. But you're going to need a good blocking tight end if you're going to run outside zone with Delvin Cook all the time. I think Kyle Rudolph is a really good late inning reliever or a really good a really good designated hitter, a guy who has 15 touchdowns the last couple of years. I'm guessing almost all of them, if not all of them are in the red zone yep, inside yep. the 10 yard line. So if you, if you're looking for a big pair of hands in a guy that it's third and five or it's second or third and goal, and you need a target, he's been reliable in those instances. If you're looking for run blocking, like you said, or separation or yards after the catch, he's not going to deliver is in as many of those areas. So, you know, at some point, you're going to have to match what he gives you from a production standpoint to the salary. There's a lot more football meat on the bone. We got to Peter King has some interesting speculation on the Vikings quarterback situation we can get to. 
Uh, the Vikings made it official. They have a new offensive guru on their staff, a new passing game specialist that has some Minnesota roots and also a really interesting resume. We can talk about that later on, too. But let's get an inside look at the Twins' new starting pitcher, Jake Odorizzi. We'll talk to Mark Tompkin from the Tampa Bay Times when we come back. It's Mackie and Judd. Collar in for Judd in the TCL Broadcast Studios. What is this? Mackie and Judd now continue. Okay, thank you. On 1500 ESPN. The Minnesota Twins may be kind of trade you make when you are in a go-for-it mode. Nice going, Twins. Nice work, nice week. Jake Odorizzi makes them better, puts them in the American League postseason mix in 2018, and that's all that matters. Yeah, we've definitely heard from a lot of Twins fans on the show today that, hey, it, it, because they missed out on you, Darvish, or they didn't trade for Chris Archer, that Odorizzi feels like a, a buzzkill consolation prize. But he's a very good pitcher, and we're going to get the uh, the lowdown here. Mark Topkin is one of the best beat writers in the country, Tampa Bay Times. And Topper, uh, we're stealing you as a guest from Patrick Royce in the afternoon, and we're <laughs> we're beating him to the punch. He's probably going to get a hold of you, but we're beating him to the punch by a few hours. So thank you for joining us. No problem. I tell you, the trade hadn't even been uh, written up yet uh, Saturday night, and Royce was texting me, asking me for the lowdown on Odorizzi. So he's always working, that guy. Yep. So what? All right. What? Tell Twins fans and tell us, you know, what kind of a person, what kind of a pitcher. I mean, that's a tough division to pitch in. And I mean, we're talking the, the Blue Jays offenses for five years and Yankees offenses and small ballparks, and he held his own pretty well. So who are the Twins getting here? He did. I mean, the Twins are getting a guy that, you know, as you say, first of all, has had a, a successful record, a winning record, four full seasons pitching for the Tampa Bay Rays in the American League East, which obviously means the preponderance of your games against the Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Blue Jays, and then in the Orioles in that ballpark. A lot of teams that can bash a winning record in the ERA, but, you know, three and a half, uh, three and three quarters, somewhere in there. So you're getting a guy who can be successful. You're getting a guy who's not going to overpower hitters. He is not going to blow, you know, fastball by you. He mixes his things up. He's, I mean, you remember the old phrase, like, crafty lefty? He's kind of the crafty righty. I mean, he can run a fastball, you know, low 90s, but he's got a repertoire that some days you watch him pitch and you think he's got three pitches, and some days you watch him pitch and you think he's got six pitches. I mean, he learned the split change from Alex Cobb a couple of years ago, and that became a huge pitch for him. He's got like a little kind of a knuckle curve kind of pitch. He's obviously fastball. He can break some balls off. He can throw a slider. So he can do a lot of different things. So I mean, one thing Oda is he does, he competes. He's very uh, dependable. He's very consistent. I mean, you go back and look at his pitch logs, and, and typically a Jake Oda Rizzi game, he's going to go six innings, and he's going to allow one or two runs. That That's kind of what a typical game is. Obviously, some are better, some are worse. But that, that's kind of what he does, and the Rays kind of came to depend on him. So all that aside, he is uh, quiet, but he is uh, one of those fierce competitor-type guys, Midwestern guy. He's going to have some you know, kind of transplanted Minnesota nice in him there, coming out of southern <laughs> Illinois in the St. Louis area. Um, you know, He'll speak his mind on occasion, but he's very determined. He's a guy that didn't get a lot of – you know, he wasn't – you know, highly recruited, just coming out of the Midwest. But, you know, he's been traded three times now. I think he pitches a little bit with a chip on his shoulder. And I think it's a great situation for him. I mean, he's going to be comfortable, obviously, knowing some of those teams. I think that's a division where he's going to do really well just based on how he's matched up with some of those teams, some familiarity, you know, from playing there, obviously, with Derek Shelton on the coaching staff. So I think there's a lot of reasons that this is a really good pickup for the Minnesota Twins outside of the fact that they hardly gave up anything. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, none of us are going to be smart enough, even even Patrick Royce, to tell you what Jermaine Palacios is going to turn into in three or four years. But on the surface, to think that the Twins got the number two starter out of the Rays rotation 
for someone who wasn't in their top 30 prospects. I mean, I thought Derek Falvey's quote, he was very you know, generous in what he said yesterday, but realistically, that's your fifth best shortstop prospect, and you just got Jay Goderizzi for him. So I, I think, and, and a lot of Rays players, and I will tell you this, and Chris Archer on the record and a couple other guys off the record were saying they thought the Twins did really well in getting the deal done. Well, that's what I was going to ask, Mark, is is there some frustration from the Rays after this offseason? They're, they're, the players who are still there, uh, they can't be happy with this. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, part of it is it's it's kind of the way the Rays always do things, but part of it is you know, the reality hit them. You know, they they kind of got over the Longoria trade only in the sense that it happened right before the holidays, which may have been by design. You know, the team knew players would kind of get over it. You know, he's not here. Okay, they've got some other guys, but to have the players first in camp and then see Odorizzi and Dickerson trade, it really hit a lot of guys hard. Kevin Kiermeyer, you know, who's really one of the faces on the team, one of the leaders. He spoke out this morning and said he was a hundred percent frustrated and upset with what they did. You know, Archer talked a little bit about it again today. So they're going to get over it. They're going to go out and play. They still, amazingly enough, and in a way to the credit of the front office here, they still have a decent amount of talent on this team. And, yeah, you know, we've been curious, were they going to go for the total blow up, total rebuild, you know, Cubs Astro style. And obviously in their decision to hang on to Chris Archer, we know the twins are among teams calling about him to hang on to Kevin Kiermaier. They've got a $10 million catcher in Wilson Ramos. They've got a $6 million shortstop in a Danny Echevarria. You know, they've still got Alex Colome, which the guy I had him number one on my list going to the offseason to be yeah. traded. That's uh, that surprised me, and I still think he may be. But, you know, they still have some pieces here. So it's going to be a year where you know, I don't think they're going to win, but they may not be as horrible, quote-unquote, as a lot of people think based on what they do with other moves going forward. But, you know, the, the Odorizzi trade, I mean, I thought he was going to go. I thought the Twins and Brewers were the two teams that I thought were most interested from what I've been hearing. But I was definitely surprised they didn't get more for him. Uh, Mark Topkin uh, covers the Rays for the Tampa Bay Times. If you're go follow him on Twitter too, by the way, uh, it's just uh, at tb times underscore Rays. If you want some some good insight during baseball season, so the Chris Archer stuff has been out there. He's got four years of team control. So Zach Zach Greinke makes thirty five million dollars per year. Chris Archer, <laughs> who's one of the top twelve or fifteen pitchers in baseball. Signed one of those team-friendly deals a while back, makes $35 million over the next four years with the team options. If the Twins, I mean, we've heard Max Kepler's name out there here in the Twin Cities. If the Twins were to go back to the Rays and say, listen, Buxton's off the board, Royce Lewis is off the board, number one overall pick, and Jose Barrios is off the board. You can take Kepler and any three prospects in the system. Is that, like, what gets it done for Chris Archer? It, you know, it's so hard to say, and I, I hate to dodge your question, but it's just it's such a hard scale because it's not always quantity and it's not always quality. It's sometimes it's the mix in there. And, you know, I know that for the Rays going into this offseason, the expectation I heard was, you know, it would be really hard for them to trade Archer and probably whatever they got for Odorizzi, they would want twice as much for Archer. Now, the fact that they didn't get very much for Odorizzi, I still don't think that's going to lower their price scale on Archer. They think he's a incredible commodity both to them and elsewhere in the league it's going to be a sliding scale though because look he's going to get traded at some point every player who comes through the Rays gets traded or leaves as a free agent I mean Aaron Longoria was the safest bet I thought there would be to you know play a lengthy career and stay with the team and that didn't happen either so he's Archer is going to get traded I just think they're going to kind of wait till they the scale tips a little bit more in their favor now if this season goes horribly and they are struggling along come June or July and teams start, you know, with the offers kind of like the old days offers, not the current days offers and are willing to pay, like you say, you know, a Kepler and and two or three other really good prospects and maybe they do listen. But as of now, I I don't get the sense they want to do anything with Archer just yet. 
they still feel like he's got incredible value, and there's going to be a way to maximize that for them one way or the other. Yeah. Hey, so the Twins have been rev- they've been revamping their front office for over a year now, ever since Derek Falvey and Thad Levine took over. And one of the sneaky, under-the-radar moves they made a few months ago, they brought over one of the main analytics pitching gurus from the Rays, Josh Kulk. And the story that, like, so for people who don't know, Josh Kulk had a pitch FX blog like 10 years ago, and the you know the Rays told him, shut it down, we'll hire you, and uh, you never tell anyone what you do for us. So what what do you know about Josh Kulk? What kind of things does does a guy like that bring to an organization? Is it all just of uh, of uh, is it all in secrecy? Like what do you know about him? Okay, so you know those all those nice things you said about me at the beginning of this interview, being a good reporter and all that. I, I know here's how little I know about Josh Kalk. When the Twins officially hired him, they let him uh, they brought him to the winter meetings, I guess, so he could meet a lot of the organization down there. And uh, Dustin was taking him around, and I guess ran into Lavelle and a couple other writers and introduced him. And they asked him something about it, and coming from Tampa Bay, and he said, "Yeah, I was there for nine years. I never met Mark Topkin." Yeah. So I don't even know what the dude looks like. I never talked to him. He was totally. They, they didn't even put him in the media guide the first couple of years. They didn't want anybody else to know he was working for them. So you talk about, you know, I got to kill you if I tell you kind of stuff. Oh yeah. He is top secret. I mean, what he, the, the essence of it is right. He understood. He has a great understanding of pitch effects, which is, you know, the very first, you know, kind of really deep analytical, statistical video analysis of everything that happens to balls when they're pitched. And he has combined that with how it affects injury. That, that to me, is where he, you know, was really his niche was he could kind of forecast, and this is a little, little supposing here, a little suppositioning, but he could forecast, you know, when guys were breaking down and things like that. Now, there's other companies who do that now. There's other people who try it. But I think that's really where he kind of created his value. And, you know, it wasn't that him and the Rays had a horrible breakup. My understanding was he just had, you know, some personal things where it was better for him to, to move to the Midwest and, the twins are going to be lucky to have him. I mean, he's obviously a brilliant mind, but I couldn't tell you if he was sitting here next to me. <laughs> hey, Mark, what is the latest on just where the Rays stand as an organization? I mean, they're they're a team that seems to come up all the time. If it's ever a team going to move in Major League Baseball or anything like that, like, are you studying uh, football tape just in case? Or I mean, what <laughs> what is the status? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, um, you know, the, the short answer is they they obviously have had horrible attendance. They've been at or near the bottom for the last about six, seven years. They are and have been searching for a long time to find a new stadium solution. They've made some progress on that. They've picked out a site on the uh, east, to explain to your readers here, on the east side of downtown Tampa, between downtown Tampa and this historic neighborhood called Ybor City. They've found a site there. They've committed to try to make that work. There's a major hurdle, obviously, with funding and financing. They don't want to pay for it all. The city and the county don't want to pay for it all. So they're trying to figure out you know, how to piece this whole thing together, involving the business community. The commissioner was down here the other day. But but here's the thing. They're, they are signed to a lease at Tropicana Field for 10 more years. And that lease use agreement was written when the Rays were the ones trying to get the Twins and trying to get the Mariners and trying to get the Giants. And all these other, was Not the Rays, I'm sorry, when Tampa St. Petersburg was trying to get those teams. So that lease was written by St. Petersburg officials to be very much lock solid. So I don't think they're going anywhere before 2028. That lease runs through 2027. If they, what they did do is they worked out a deal with the city of St. Petersburg where they currently play. If they were to move to Tampa and just to Tampa, they could leave the lease early. So if this thing that they're talking about now in Tampa and Ybor city works, it's going to be five years from now as it is. So I'm going to play the old guy card here and say, I, I've been doing this. It's my 21st season. I'm not so sure that if they move, I'm going to have to worry about it. 
but, but yeah, I mean, the, the serious answer to your question is obviously there's still some uncertainty that hangs over there, but nothing immediate. I mean, I used, I had joked with Longoria. He was the one player that I thought would probably play in whatever new stadium they eventually get, and obviously now that's gone too. So it's just still a number of years down the road. It's obviously unfortunate for the players. Like, you know, think about this. What if you ever got called up and your only major league game you played was a Tropicana field like God. on a Tuesday night? Oh. And that was your only major league experience. So it, it, it's been unfortunate. I mean, they obviously grew better when they won. They've also had four straight losing seasons. They haven't been in the playoffs since the Joe Madden, Andrew Friedman regime. So there, there's a lot of reasons for a lot of things that have happened here. But, you know, they're hoping brighter days are ahead. And yet, by dealing these guys that we just talked about, Corey Dickerson getting DFA, trading Odorizzi, there's a lot of fans and players upset with what they're doing right now. Yeah, dude hits 27 bombs, all-star, and he's he's uh, DFA. I mean, the DFA thing, it's not your classic DFA, but it just look the optics are bad. But, right. Um, right. I mean, somebody sent me a stat yesterday saying, look at his stats and age and war versus Eric Hosmer's stats and age and yeah. war. And Hosmer got $144 million and Dickerson got DFA'd on the same day. So. Yeah. It's a weird business, uh, and it's just been a weird time for this team right now. And like I said, they still feel like they're going to come out of this with a team that can compete. It'll be very, very curious to see. Mark, great stuff. Mark Topkin from the Tampa Bay Times. He's a fantastic beat writer covering the Rays and some good insight on Jake Odorizzi. And uh, say hi to Pat. And we don't we don't get to see Pat because he sits in Florida and does the show until we see him in studio after spring training's over. But you'll see him before we do, I'm sure. <laughs> well, that'll that'll really be to my benefit. Let me say hi. You guys have an incredible uh, twin and also a Vikings fan who lives in Atlantic City, New Jersey, named Dave Nockowitz, who's listening right now because he just texted me. So Boom. it's up to him, too. We're global on we're global on 1500 <laughs> yeah. ESPN, Topper. Thanks, man. All right, guys. See ya. All right. Um, well, well, there's a couple of things. So we'll get back to some of this discussion, but Josh Kulk, that's amazing. And so, by the way, like, he's one of the best, most plugged-in beat writers in baseball. And the Rays pitching analytics guru was there for nine years. They told him Jonah Carey wrote a book about the Rays and couldn't even get close enough to the throne to interview some of these people because they just wouldn't allow it. Called the extra two percent, and they. But he does get some information on this Josh Cult from a decade ago. Shut your blog down. We'll hire you. Don't ever tell anyone what you do for us. And there's actually a blog from 2015 that explains how Josh Kulk and the rest of the Rays analytics inner workings gurus launched an internal system called Kina Tracks, which is a markerless motion capture technology that will revolutionize the way teams can evaluate and monitor their pitchers and injuries. He was a physicist by trade before he took on baseball blogging as a hobby. And now he works for the Twins in secrecy. I mean, I thought about being a physicist, but, you know. But, you know, like journalism... Uh, being a physicist, same skill set. Really. Yeah, it's all kind of the same. Dave, what kind of stuff do you have for us next? Really good stuff, Phil. College basketball officiating continues to stink, according to some. A great uh, nugget for any uh, always sunny in Philadelphia fans. And yeah, the anthem. Mackie and Judd. Judd's out still. Collars in. TCL Broadcast Studio. Mackie and Judd are back. Come on, boys, we're gonna do it again. <laughs> Fifteen hundred ESPN and stuff you should know about is sponsored by Indeed. Are you hiring with Indeed? You can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on qualified candidates in an online dashboard. Get started at Indeed.com/hire. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please rise, men. Remove your caps as we honor America and the Twin Cities sports scene with the playing of Stuff 
you should know about. We got Collar in here from 1500ESPN.com. Saturday Sports Talk now as well and the Purple Podcast. Judd's back tomorrow from his Chicago excursion. We hope if the flight can get in. Yeah. I saw some uh, awkward Judd photos from like a skating rink outside Wrigley Field over the weekend. Not like sitting on TC awkward, but still awkward. Yeah, yes. like he wasn't sure like, how, do how I to smile. smile. How do I stand? Yeah. <laughs> we need to teach Judd just like a go-to smile. Or like a go-to thought when people want you to smile that you can, ah, yingling. Don't, yes. don't most people practice that, like their picture smile? Like in the mirror you look or you take selfies and you're like, okay, so when any... The selfie practice. A, yeah, sure. anytime anyone takes a picture of me somewhere, I'm going to do this with my face muscles because I know it looks okay. Yeah, maybe Jay's like, never done that. Maybe like eyebrows up. Yeah. And, or like like Dave had a good trick before the show. Just... Laugh for, for for like think of something funny and kind of just give a to fake yourself. laugh that <laughs> you get a great smile oh, out of it. Instead, yeah. he looks like every kindergartner just ooh yeah. teeth. <laughs> and he would admit that too if oh, he yeah. were here right now. All right, what's some stuff we should know about? Well, let's talk about something worse than Judd's smile and sorry. Oh, oh. Say, does that Bring it home, Fergie. Come on. Oh, my God. For the land of the free. Woo. Oh, God. (laughs) No. And the home of the Oh hurts. my God! It okay. hurts so bad. Yeah. Oh, let's play some bad. Oh. That made it even worse. Oh, I just gained a whole new level of respect for whoever produced her albums the last fifteen or twenty years and made them sellable, like Black Eyed Peas, Fergie solo stuff. Whoever had to go in and manipulate those vocals to make them sellable to the mainstream, you deserve millions more dollars than you probably made off of those productions. So, because she's a professional singer by trade. I think that that becomes the number one worst of all time. The ones that people have gone to are when Rosie O'Donnell tried it. Carl Lewis. Carl Lewis. Roseanne, you mean. Roseanne Barr. Yeah, sorry. Roseanne. Which, whose idea was that? Uh, So, but like Roseanne is just an actress. She's not a professional singer. And Carl Lewis... What the hell was he doing singing the anthem? It was weird. It's like someone, Carl Lewis, oh, Carl Lewis uh, sang karaoke a couple weeks ago. It sounded pretty good. Now, for Carl Lewis, where I'll defend him, I think the amateur move there was if you start off in the wrong key, if you start too high, like Just he was change. probably an octave higher than he wanted to yeah. be or something, or he had practiced the anthem in one key, maybe it was uh, you know like a half octave lower or something, and then they hit him with a different key. It's a very hard song to sing. Because it spans a, a, a wide range of notes, right? And so you have to be pretty good or pretty safe. And whatever that was, though, that, that was wasn't either anything. good nor that, safe. That wasn't anything. Now, I saw the Strib last night posted a tweet that said that she was going, it was something like she tries a sexy anthem. 
I mean, do we need a sexy anthem? Well, Just sing it in a minute and a half and get out. I don't know a lot about sexiness personally. Speaking of a minute and a half yeah, and get I out, mean, Matthew I mean, Collar's here. Yeah, Bob's I mean, bursting in air. When the wife <laughs> holds a football, I think. Yeah, know. girl. Yeah. All right. Okay, that's sexy to me. But that didn't sound sexy at all. That just. Someone compared it, I think it was Clinton Yates who works for ESPN, to all of us in the shower. Like, just no one's around, no one's home, you're just taking the shower, and the rockets, red glare. Like, that's exactly what that sounded like. The uh, NBA and TNT guys did find the sexiness. Welcome, everybody, to the American Express Halftime Reporter, Ernie Johnson, along with Shaquille O'Neal, Kenny the Jeff Smith, and Charles Barkley. What? Can we talk about Fergus Nestle? Oh, stop. Don't do that. Don't do that to my Fergie. Leave it alone. Look, Fergie, I love you. It was different. It was sexy. I like it. Right, it was different. Sexy. Leave it alone. You needed a cigarette after that. No. Yeah, leave it alone. <laughs> All right, then. What so, else you got, Dave? Uh, are you guys uh, It's Always Sunny fans? It's yes. Always Sunny in Philadelphia? I have not seen it, no. Okay. Uh, uh, first two or three seasons, and then I kind of faded, but yes. I'm kind of hit and miss. I've, I've seen enough of them. It's entertaining enough. Not my favorite show, but there's a, a, an episode where they're trying to set Charlie up with an online dating profile. Yes. I don't know if you've seen this one, Phil. Yes. But this is a, it's like a Philadelphia Seinfeld almost is how I would yeah. characterize It's Always Sunny. That's fair. Anyway, this is a little clip from that episode. What's your favorite hobby? Uh, magnets. Magnets. Okay, what? Like making magnets, collecting magnets, playing get, with magnets. Just magnets. I'm gonna uh, put snowboarding. We'll put snowboarding. I don't really snowboard. No. All right. What are some of your likes? Uh, ghouls. What are you talking about? Yeah, now? Funny little green ghouls. Go- what? Like in movies and cartoons? What are, Little uh, green ghouls, buddy. Don't write ghouls. I'm not. I'm putting uh. travel. Okay, magnets and ghouls. Eli Kraus pitches for Kent State. Baseball club. He was pitching over the weekend in a game televised on ESPN3. Sam Levitt was the guy on the play-by-play. And yeah, he doesn't know much about these guys. So you go to the media guide to learn a few things. Let me go word for word what some of these are for Eli Krause. He enjoys magnets. It's an interesting hobby. He fears goblins and ghouls. So let's hope that nothing pops out anywhere. What else we got here? Superstition is turning off every light three times to stay alive. I don't even know what that means. Is that part of, is that part of It's Always Sunny? <laughs> I think that's a bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Play by Play, I had no idea, obviously, or had not seen the show. I wouldn't have put that together either, though. It's so a pretty obscure reference. Who discovered that, though? Like, was someone listening to, was that the radio, or was that a television? I think it was, was, was a TV It was a TV, yeah. Oh, it was a TV game, okay. Yep. Yeah, so I'm sure, like... Someone who has watched the show religiously found it and then sent it ah, to a yes. blog of some kind. Yeah. Hey, uh, just so you know, I've done a lot of research on this Fergie anthem, anthem thing. Mm-hmm. Did you know she also sang the anthem before a Dolphins-Patriots game in 2011? No. Hmm. Yeah. No, I See did not. See if you can pick up something that sounds a little familiar. Oh. 
football. So her thing is to just get down and yell, like whatever the activity <laughs> yeah. is. Do you think she does that in real life? Did you guys <laughs> Let's know go to the grocery store? <laughs> that they sing the anthem before the dog show? There's like that Westminster dog an show. Ath- it's an athletic competition. Of course, you sing the national anthem before the dog show. Well, I was ready for that dog show. I like a good dog show. Though, in my opinion, the Westminster should include the Greyhound, which is my dog. But so I'm like, oh, yeah, all right, great, cute dogs. I'm going to watch this. And they're just about to get started. I'm like, all right, I'm pumped. Some schnauzers, let's go. And then they pull out a guy with a microphone to sing the anthem. The dogs don't care about the anthem. <laughs> well, first of all, dogs are Americans too, okay? Dogs <laughs> yeah, can right. show patriotism. I think a couple of them sat. I think there has to be a dog somewhere in the country that's able to like howl some semblance of the national anthem. So if you can get a dog to go along with it in a duet, then I would sign up even more. Howlin' Kaepernick sat for the anthem. <laughs> Stop. Sometimes I like your puns. I will give you credit for that. I'm, I'm just, I'm just gonna play this. You know, somebody asked me whether I think he'll be uh, a major league player at some point. I think he will play in the major leagues. Uh, that's my, that's my guess. That's my hope. And to some extent, now after a year and a half, um, uh, a modest expectation. Sandy Alderson, Mets GM, on Tim Tebow. Well, so two things, okay. Number one, I saw some video of Tim Tebow in the batting cage yesterday. He looks ripped. Bombs. The swing looks great. Going opposite field. Secondly, he's like 30 years old, right? So there's no point in not bringing him. If you're going to put him in your organization and he's going to eventually, like he's going to take up a roster spot on a team and eventually the goal is to maybe have this thing work out, like... He's 30, so you should just throw him in the fire and see what happens, right? What's the point in slow cooking until he's 34, and then he's washed up even more? Anybody who was criticizing the Mets for signing Tebow or upset about it, we were just talking about the Twins bringing in Butch Husky and, I mean, a bunch of these other players, Mike Morgan pitching at age 38 and Brett Boone and Rondell White. and uh, Long shots are a part of baseball where it happens all the time. And if the guy's name, if it wasn't Tim Tebow and it was just like Stan Johnson, but he had been a football player who won the Heisman Trophy and was taking a shot at it at six foot four, 250 pounds, and a better athlete than 98% of Major League Baseball, you'd be like, all right, let him swing yeah, away. And what I would say but, is like Stan Johnson's the guy who got cut from the team so that they could put Tim Tebow on the roster, and he yeah. wasn't going to make it either. So. So people can get off yes. that wagon. Because if you go to double A rosters, they're like, oh, they're taking away a job from a real prospect. Yeah. Uh, no, there's a lot of 28 year olds in double A. Yeah. And like none of them are going to make the major leagues. If you're 28 and in double A, you're probably not going to make the major leagues. Collar's hanging out with us in for Judd in the TCL broadcast studios. Uh, we'll get back. There's a lot of Viking stuff to get to here. The new offensive passing game guru. They just announced on the coaching staff Peter King with some opinions on what the Vikings might do at quarterback. And uh, plenty more here, Mackie and Judd, TCL Broadcast Studios. Phil Mackie, Judd Zolgad. You don't seem like a public menace to me. Mackie and Judd on 1500 ESPN. Join 1500 ESPN and Rookie this Sunday at the 2018 Lake Home and Cabin Show from noon to 2 at the Minneapolis Convention Center, now in its 14th year. The Lake Hoban Cabin Show is Minnesota's only show that specializes in second homes and the second home lifestyle. If you own a lake home, cottage, or cabin, or you want to own one, 
This is a truly unique and focused event you will want to experience. Details at 1500ESPN.com keyword events. This portion of Mackie and Judd with Mackie and Collar is sponsored by Menards. You know, it's... I was going to say, that's the audio of it. It's not often you see someone uh, sink a putt for $100,000 worth of uh, merchandise or whatever it may be. But Paul from Rosemount at the Venture Bank Minnesota Golf Show over the weekend, he won the $100,000 putt at the uh, at the station that we were doing this at. So that, that includes a brand new South Bay pontoon valued at seventy five grand and $25,000 cash courtesy of Nelson Marine. Uh, Paul, in fact, let's make this official, Paul. Yes, sir. Hello, friends. How are you doing? <laughs> we have Paul from Rosemount. Take us through <laughs> the putt for $75,000 worth of a pontoon and $25,000 in cash. <laughs> well, just close your eyes and swung and hope it got to the hole. <laughs> Do you have uh, an extensive golf background, or did you just get up there blindfolded, basically, and uh, took a hack? You know, I got up there blindfolded basically and took a hack. I mean, I golf, but, uh, you know, maybe three times a month during the summertime, obviously. But uh, And that was actually one of the third putt of the day. I had uh, the 100-foot one to qualify, and then uh, uh, 25-foot one, and there was 34 guys in a putt-off to see who got the putt for the boat. So I had to make the 25-foot one there. and then So that was the third putt of the day. So by that time, I was just like, Yep, close your eyes, get up, and just make sure it gets to the hole. Is all I was all I was thinking. And how long was the the one that that won you the cache? That was uh, 125. Yeah, 125 foot. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, that must be kind of cool. Like people going crazy. It's almost like the guy from the Ryder Cup a year and a half ago who 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 jumped out in the middle of a practice round and sank that like 15 or 20 footer in front of an audience. Like there's people staring and watching. You heard the crowd noise coming in. That must have been kind of cool. It was. It was really cool. And when I was, we were in the putt off. I was actually really nervous making the shorter putt, the twenty-five foot. I'm like, is this really what it's like in the, you know, the PGA Tour with people standing around you? You know, just don't shank it. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so when I when I hit the big putt, um, you know, they said the place went crazy and it was super loud. And to be honest with you, I didn't hear anything at that point. You blacked you know, out at that. Wow. But you passed out. They had to revive you. <laughs> yeah, I was just hoping I didn't do the little Phil Mickelson hop he did at the Masters when he won. Yeah. You know. <laughs> So are you? So you get you get the pontoon with the twenty five uh, twenty five thousand dollars in cash from uh, from Nelson Marine. Are you? Is there something you're going to plop that down on? Or are you going to invest it wisely? What do you What are you going to do with it? Uh, I invest it wisely for the taxes on the boat. There you go. So yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, that's to help for for the whole prize package. So very generous of them. And uh, and the first tee, the guys from first tee, where the uh, all the proceeds for the putts that um, the, the initial putts uh, to qualify. Um, we went to First Tee uh, organization, yeah. so all those guys are out there and fantastic. But, uh, yeah. Well, Paul, um, congratulations. If people want to see the video, by the way, it's on the Venture Bank Minnesota Golf Show Facebook page. So if you just Google Venture Bank Minnesota Golf Show Facebook and uh, click on it, you can go to the video tabs. And uh, it's kind of blowing up. A few thousand people have already clicked on it, so you can kind of see the reaction. And and uh, you can see yeah. Paul sink that putt. So congratulations, Paul. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, right on. That's that's Paul from Rosemount, and uh, it's one of our most fun, successful events of the year. And it was awesome again over the weekend. And he won the one hundred thousand putt challenge for uh, a brand new South Bay pontoon valued at seventy five thousand, and then uh, the twenty five thousand dollars in cash courtesy of Nelson Marine. Do you golf at all, Matthew? Uh, I used to. I really got into it one summer because I wanted to find out 
how good I could possibly be. What's my golf ceiling? And I broke 90 once, legit, that's with no good. kicking it out of the woods or anything like that. Yeah. And then I decided, all right, that's my answer. That 88 is the best I can do. It's the best I'll ever do because I will never get another chance to put this much time into it. And since then, I have played maybe one time in a charity golf tournament. If you can break 90, you can keep up, though. Like, you can, yeah. you won't embarrass yourself against really good golfers. You'll be a stroke behind on every hole. And that's fine. 